Wrestling is fake news. It's not a picture. It's old Tony Atlas back again with the 24, 25, 28, 30-inch guns. <laughs> 30 inches. <laughs> Are you adding them together, Tony? And you know that's not true. <laughs> but as an old buddy of mine by the name of Mad Dog Vashon, he used to always tell me, if a story is worth telling, it's worth embellishing. <laughs> so, like I was saying, some of my earlier stuff, wrestling didn't. We didn't get out much back when it was when wrestling was wrestling. You know, not sport entertainment, not criticizing what the guys do today. I think they're doing a wonderful job. They're keeping up with, you know, keep up with the time. You know, we like a '57 Chevy, but you get a better performance out of a 2021 Chevy as you will from a 19. 57 Chevy, even if it's in mint condition, it don't have all the, the gadgets that they got on stuff now. Well, wrestling world is the same way. There was a time where I could grab a headlock and work that headlock all night long. I could work that headlock and people would cheer. And the object of my opponent was to get out of the headlock and I could make a match. I remember wrestling Ken Patero, uh, Olympic champion. Patero went to the Olympic, represented us very well. Teamed up, came to Mid-Atlantic, uh, training in uh, uh, Minneapolis, known all over the world. Ken Patero, an Olympia competitor, uh, lift against the big Russia, Alexius. Me and Patero, we go in the ring, and we would do strongman stuff. Y'all probably have seen on TV where me and Ken Patero, we take this bar, and we bend it around our neck. We took a 10-pin nail. We drove it through a board. Uh, we haven't even had a bench press contest to see who could bench press more of it. So we got in the ring. All we had to do was do a test of strength. We lock hands, go around, test of strength, test of strength. And then finally, I would get a hold on, on Ken Patero. And I would just, and he would be fighting to get out of the hole. 
Um, and, and that we could do five, ten minutes of just, you know, hold a guy in the hope. But today, people got short expenses span, so they like for go boom, 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 boom. Back in my day, we call that high spots. You know, it was not the actual wrestling match. Like I said, our job was to make wrestling look as real as possible. We all knew it was a work. Some of us were so stiff, we call them stiff, call them crowbar. If you're a crowbar, if you're stiff. Now, crowbar, <clears throat> he hit you. No other way of putting it. He didn't pull his punch. He whacked the hell out of you. We had guys, I remember a match, like, you know, how Tony talked. He'd start on one thing, and by the time of the day, you ain't going to know what the hell I said. I won't even know what the hell I said. So try to keep up <laughs> if you can. Going back to the guys with, like, Crowbar, this was all the way up, I would say, all the way up until the mid-'80s. I was in Toronto, Canada, and uh, with George Scott, Rick Flair, Rick and Stingbow. And they were just opening up uh, TV in uh, uh, Toronto. They wanted to really get a relationship going with Toronto and a uh, Mid-Atlantic. So what ended up happening was I was sitting there watching this match with Rick the Dragon Steamboat and, uh, excuse me, Rick the Dragon Steamboat and uh, Rick Flair. And they were chopping each other. Whack! 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 I'm sitting there looking at this. And they just beating the living dog mess out of each other. When they get back to the dressing room, both Flair and uh, uh, Steamboat have open rooms on their chest. They have busted each other's skin open. They're bleeding from the freaking chest. They hit each other so hard that they just bust, <laughs> crack, broke the skin. I mean, you see guys hit the bruises, the handprint, the whole ball of... These guys were actually bleeding from the chest. It looked like somebody took a razor blade and, and cut them up. They were hitting each other uh, uh, so hard. Guys wanted to make people believe that what they saw was for real. And believe it or not, 70% of it was. You would get these old timers in, in the ring. And I remember they would put me against guys that we used to call shooters. Now, a shooter is a guy that had a hell of a, hell of a, uh, hell of a background to him, you know. And when you read about the, some of these guys, I'm going to have Larry to, to read some brief stuff about this one guy that nobody talk about. And he used to get teased all the time because he was Jewish. His name was Abe Jacob. Now, Abe Jacob, uh, where was, uh, uh, how old was Abe and when was Abe born, Larry? Abe was born in June of 1938. 1938. Not 1938. And he was a Jewish guy. People used to piss, uh, pick on him all the time because he was, because he was, he was, uh, he was Jewish. And, and he started, and when did he retire from the ring? Is he his, started uh, in 58. 1958, he started his career. And he retired in 81. So he and retired in 81. 23 years. 23 years. 58 to 81. 23 years. 23 years as a pro wrestler. But Abe Jacob was not what you call a big draw. Him and, and uh, Luther Lindsay, you know, they were very, very good friends. Luther Lindsay this was another tough guy. And he died in the ring. He jumped off the top top rope, hit the mat. The guy rolled him over, pinned him one, two, three. 
everybody waiting for Luther Lindsay to get up and never got back up. He uh-huh. just just died right there uh, in the ring. Did I, I told about Ox Baker hitting a guy. The guy had a heart attack. Ended up there and gave Ox Baker uh, a, a great lift. Bruno Sammartino got his neck broken. Made Stan Hansen, Larry, do the most feared uh, thing in the world. Now, Abe Jacob created a move that was so popular, and they asked him one time, can he still do it? He said, I, don't, I forgot how to do it myself. They're called the Kiwi Roll. Yep. He was the, uh, the, 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 the inventor of the Kiwi Roll, where he would put his knee in the back of your knee, and roll around the ring with you. Well, when he came down on your knee, then the pressure of his body weight on your knee, by the time he finished that Kiwi roll on you, from the uh, from your knees to your toes were numb. You have to sit there for a while and let the circulation get back in your leg in order for you to walk. So wrestling have have changed a, a great deal. People ask me all the time, I told it. I like the old school wrestling compared to what they got now. Well, what we did, we learned this. A move is only as good as your opponent sells it. You know, they have to really put it over. If you don't put it over, it means nothing. I was trying to watch, not to, like I said, I'm not knocking anything anybody do. Uh, I was watching uh, Monday Night Raw one night. Uh, and this guy drop kicked him. Moon some fat flipping. Did this, did that, did this, did this, did everything this guy. The guy get up and kick his butt. I go, back in my day, we would make that move, make like Ernie Lab would say, get the most mileage on it as you can. We would make that move mean something. See, nothing the reason wrestling is not that excited to people no more. Nothing means nothing. It don't matter how pretty a move is. You know, you can have the boxing. You can have the prettiest punch in the world. Beautiful punching. Oh, beautiful. But you couldn't bust a grape with them. So what they use is having a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful punch, but you can't hurt nobody with it. It's kind of like having a big, beautiful car sitting out in the yard, but it don't run. <laughs> the motor, the motor sucks. So, you know, something that look good don't necessarily mean it is good. If the person you're doing it to, don't put it over. So wrestling is what we call in the old day was a team effort. If I work with you and I do something to you and you don't put it over, then I don't put your stuff over. Banana match look shitty because ain't nobody selling for nobody. Or if I if you're tough enough, old time would tell you, I'm gonna give you another punch, kid. If you don't sell this one, I'm going to give you something that would make you sell. So the guy would punch you. You don't sell it. Then he would hit you so hard, he almost knock you out. He would make you sell. Or some these old shooters would get you down and put you in a hole and make you squirm like a little rabbit. The next time you get that ring, you would put his, put his stuff over. <gasps> Another thing was respect. You had to have respect. I mean, you have to earn respect. It wasn't like you walk in the door, hey, Larry, I respect you because you're Larry the Hillbilly. I'm going to respect you. Oh, I'm going to respect you, Rocket Johnson, because you're the soul man, Rocket Johnson. No, no, I don't respect you until I feel you in the ring. Nobody respect me until they feel me in the ring. I'm talking 
Like I say again, the 70s and the 80s. The reason I stick so much with the 70s and the 80s, that's where I, I learned. And like Larry just read, I was learned, learned, taught by a guy that started wrestling in 1958. So what he learned in 58, 68, he was teaching it to me in 78. There were a lot of times when I talk, I bring these people names up because these are the people that taught me the, the world of uh, pro wrestling, you know. We didn't have wrestling school, you know. There was a guy that I left out of my conversation about people that helped me, which I, I feel bad about because he had uh, deceased. His name was uh, Larry Shaw. And Larry Shaw was the guy that started the first wrestling school with the Monster Factory. You know, Bam Bam Bigelow came out of there, and a lot of a lot of a lot of great talent uh, came out of uh, his wrestling school. And um, Larry Sharp was a guy that came down every day to train because Larry was not a top guy in the Mid Atlantic during that time. So if you're not a top guy, and the and the boss asked you to do something, you didn't ask what or anything. You just went and did it. So when they asked Larry, it said, "Look, I want you to meet Tony Atlas every morning." at the YMCA in Charlotte, North Carolina, and teach him the rope, where Larry was here there every day. The other guy that was there just about every day was Gene Anderson. Now, Ole would come down, Ole Anderson would come down, but Ole would wait until you get tired. So they would have me doing 300 push-ups until my arms felt like rubber band. They had me doing jumping jacks, you know, until my legs felt like spaghetti. Then they put me on the mat with other shooters to stretch me a little bit. And then Ole walked through the door. Hey, let me have him now. Now he's tired. <laughs> so one day, one day, Larry Sharp decided to play a joke on Ole. So I come in. I said, I wait for them to tell me what to do. So every time I ask Larry Sharp something, he said, just stay over there and rest. And I, I just sat down. <laughs> so another... 15 minutes went by, I said, brother, are we going to do that? He said, don't worry, Tony, you, you're going to get to do something. Just just relax. You just sit there and rest. Get your rest. We want you to be fresh for this. I said, okay. <laughs> so about 30 minutes went by. Here come Ole. Larry saw him coming. So Larry said, Larry came in, took a glass of water, and threw it in my face. And threw water all over my shirt. Made it look like I was sweating. I ain't did this so you have to make it look like I, you know, don't broke <coughs> So I'm sitting there and Larry said, look, look here. I want you to act like you're the most tired guy in the world. Act like you're tired. So I'm laying there. Ah, 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 ah. And Ole come in. Ole come in. Is he ready for me? And they said, oh, yeah, Ole. He, he, he's ready for you. He's ready for you. So he said, all right, come on, you piece of shit. I'm going to show you what wrestling is all about. Ole grabbed a hold of me. I, I found a car took him down. And hooked him. He got up again. He tried to do something else. I take him down again. Hooked him again. Fanny, he said, what the fuck is going on here? You got to play the joke on me. Y'all didn't tire him out enough. He's not tired. <laughs> they, did, they, they, they ripped the hell out of Ole uh, <laughs> on that time. But Ole wasn't good natured about it. You know, he, and I ain't saying Ole was a, a, a chump or anything. But it was a thing in wrestling we called the ultimate of surprise. Ole had just worked out with the weights. Ole just got through running around the gym. They used to have an indoor track back in them days. So Ole just did his mile around. He did his weightlifting. So he was all pumped up. You know anybody that lift weights, 
when you lift weight, your muscles get tight. So Ola was all pumped up and everything. But he would come in and stress the guys at the end of his workout for fun. But he used to get the other guys to tire this guy out when this guy is so damn tired that he could barely stand up. That when Ola would jump your ass, you can't even hardly stand up. <laughs> but they, So they played a joke on Ola one time by having me to rest up because they knew that I had a pretty decent uh, uh, amateur background. And I knew how to handle myself back in them days. You know, pretty decent. You know, I couldn't work my way out of a wet paint bag today, but back in them days, as old times say, in my day, but that's how it was with, with, with us wrestling. But Ole Anderson, a lot of people didn't like Ole. And uh, I remember Ole telling me something one time. He said, You almost not got into business. And I said, Why not? I said, You big, strong guy. He's about 265, yeah, 270. Yeah, big barrel check, big Polish guy, you know, 20 inch arm. 18 inch forearm, just you know, big and and a pretty salty person on top of it. So I said, Why they wouldn't want to make he said, I was 24 years old. I said, I was 24. He said, They didn't want me because they said I was too old to learn. See, wrestling back then was kind of like the military, you know, they bring you in young because you tell an 18 year old, Get up on that rope, kid, and jump off before you finish talking. That 18 year old is up the rope and on the way off the rope. You tell that to a 30-year-old, he goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you want me to do what? <laughs> you want me to do what? See, as we get older, we use more of this and less of this. When we're young, it's all about this and nothing about this. So as you get older, you get a blip and wide, so it's a lot easier to train. It's old say you can't treat a old, uh, teach an old dog uh, uh, new tricks. Well, in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, that's true. So they would get you when you really, really uh, young. So uh, Ola was telling me a story about his age. And then later on, I talked to other wrestlers uh, like Randy Savage. When I first met Randy Savage, we were riding up down the street with uh, his brother, Lenny Poffel. He was wrestling at Randy Poffel then. Uh, and his father was Angelo Poffel. And Angelo was known for doing so many setups. I was like five, six hundred setups. Yeah. Or something that he, he had a record for that. He had the world record. The world record yeah. for doing the most setup in one setting. I don't mean do 50 stop. I mean, this guy did like, you know, five, six hundred setups. He had a, a, a record. Larry probably put his program over to tell you exactly how many uh, Angelo Poffer did. And they, they would train his kids when they were very young. So that by the time this kid got 20 years of age, this kid got four or five years of, of wrestling experience uh, underneath his belt because he came from a, a wrestling uh, a family. You take, like, you got Bob Orton Sr. You got Bob Orton Jr. You got Barrio with my uh, condolences go out to the Orton family. Barrio is uh, no longer uh, uh, here, here with us. He had a good, successful career in Canada. It didn't take off as well as, as uh, his, his brother Bob did. Uh, but, you know, great young man. I met him several times. Wonderful young man. But anyway, the audience, uh, uh, Randy is the third generation of uh, wrestling. Can I butt in? Go ahead. Angelo Poffo set the world record at, let's see, 6,033 sit-ups. Can you in, imagine that? In four hours and ten minutes. 6,000. 33. And 36,033 setups in four hours. Yeah. Can you imagine what type of individual? Just stop to think about this for a minute. What type of individual 
could sit there for four hours and do setup for four hours. Four hours of back and forth, back and forth. Well, these are the guys that that I met when I first started in the business. These guys was, I, I, I don't know how many times I can say this, they was tough as tough could be. This Larry, is, want to tell us something? This else. is a picture of him in 55. Not like you saw him at the end with his sons and he did when they ran outlaw. In... Can they see that? Yeah, but they can see the, the outland. You can see the muscle definition. Look at the quadriceps. That's 50. The shoulders. That's a 1955, guys. That's 1955. Dang. There you go. Look at that. Look at that. See? That's crazy. That's Randy, that's Randy Savage and Lenny Parfle's father. That's the guy that taught Randy Savage everything Randy Savage knows. Well, I'm like most black men in America. I'm in that 75% because 75% of black guys, black kids, men and women, grow up without a father. So I'm in that 75% uh, percent range. So when I got into wrestling, these guys were like a father to me. They treated me like I was their son. George Scott used to call me his son all the time. Vince McMahon Sr. used to call me his son. Uh, Jim Barnett. Treat me like I was his son. Uh, Bill Watts, Cowboy Bill Watts, he kind of treated me like a younger brother, you know. So I always had this urge to to learn from these older guys because this is this is November, and what all of us know in November, you have what's called Thanksgiving. So. I hear people complain about the country going to hell in a handbasket and this guy is this and that guy is that. My mother said, live for today, for tomorrow is promised to no one. You have to be appreciative of what you have in life. I was not raised in a rich family. I didn't grow up with a lot of money. I wasn't raised with good looks like The Rock. There was, I had a lot of faults. Still got a lot of faults. Ain't nothing changed. You know, six of one, half a dozen of another. You know, I'm pretty much the same goofy-ass kid that was running around that they used to call Argo. Still, you know, I'm still Argo. I'm just an old-ass Argo now. That's all different. But anyway, I learned from these wrestlers how to be appreciated. One of the things we used to do to show appreciation, if I'm wrestling somebody in the ring, if I'm wrestling Johnny Valentine, or I'm wrestling Angela Mosca, whoever win the match will lean over to the ear of the guy that, that, that lost, and he would say, thank you for the match. We would thank that person for laying down for us, because nine times out of ten, the guys you wrestle could whoop your ass anyway. We had a guy, I don't think he won many matches. His name was Bill White. Bill White was his name. Where Bill White would run and hit that rope and come off that rope like a freight train. And he would try his best to knock you through the next rope. He would hit you as hard as he could possibly hit you. It's so hard that sometimes you go, whack, dang. You know, this guy is stiff. He's a crowbar. He's a crowbar. But a lot of guys, they like that reputation of being a crowbar, a crowbar in the ring. They wanted to have the biggest chop. 
They wanted to have the, the, the hardest punch. They wanted to have the biggest slam or the hardest slam. You know, the harder they did it to, the more popular they became for that particular move. Well, one day I was in the ring. Now, Steve Kern is the one that taught me how to drop kick. He taught me how to do it, but I hadn't done it yet in, in a match. So I'm wrestling against, I guess, George Scott told Bill White, said, hey, get him to do the a drop kick. So I'm wrestling Bill White, and Bill White looked at me and said, Tony, have you did that drop kick yet? I said, no, not yet. He said, well, you will tonight. He threw me in a rope. He said, drop kick me. So I had to drop kick me. And a lot of stuff that we learned, we learned that day. See, that, like I said, there was no wrestling school until Larry Shop started uh, the Monster Factory. So the, when they trained you, they were trained to see, make sure you, the main part of the training was not to teach you how to work. You learn that on the road. It's like on-the-job training. The main thing they wanted to know is you going to stick with the business? Because they were so protective of the business, they was always afraid, like I mentioned earlier in one of my uh, uh, interviews with Larry here, that Peter Postley was a promoter in Charlotte, I mean, in Roanoke, Virginia. And he didn't want me in the business because he, he didn't know how tough I was. See, when I say tough, I don't just mean tough with these. I mean tough here. Because any wrestler... And and here, yeah. Larry had to remind me. Thank you, Larry. You gotta be tough here, cause you gotta be able to take it. You gotta be tough here, because any wrestler that ever been in this business more than a week or two will tell you the hardest part of the the easy part is in the ring. <laughs> That's the easiest part of, of wrestling. <laughs> the hardest part is getting to it from the show. Like a like picture this: you get up in the morning, you you have yourself a quick breakfast. 9 o'clock, you're in the gym. 10 o'clock, you're leaving the gym. 11 o'clock, you grab yourself some lunch. 12 o'clock, you're driving two or 300 miles. You the, you get to the building about 6.30. You got to be there by 7 because the show was at that time started at 8. So you have to be in the dress room by 7, not coming to the dress room, not in the parking lot, in the dress room. Then we have a guy to go by and put a little check. To see who's all who's all there, you gotta be that be prompt. That be prompt. So once after you wrestle a match, and most of the matches back then was only had five or six matches. So most of the matches were between fifteen to twenty minutes. The main event every night was thirty minutes to an hour. So you end up in the main event, you have to go thirty minutes. You couldn't go ahead and give people advertise the main event and give people a ten minute match. They're gonna want their money back. So you have to, be able to go at least thirty minutes. 30 hard minutes. Then you go and take a shower. Now this, I was used to anyway, taking a shower with a bunch of guys, you know. And some guy didn't want to take a shower, but them guys couldn't get in my car either. <laughs> they couldn't get in nobody's car. So if you didn't want to take a shower with the other wrestlers, then you better drive yourself. The guy would take a shower together. Then they would jump in the car. They would stop at a 7-Eleven and they would get their baloney blowout. Which is cheese and bologna and, and that wonder white bread. Oh God! They the wonder, wonder. They didn't have all them different breads like that. Wonder with wonder bread with the bread, brother. Yeah. You got to have that wonder white bread. You know, with mayonnaise or mustard, whatever you want on it, and and and, and a six pack of beer. You know, twelve ounce cans of beer. Everybody would get that little six pack of beer, and then you drive down back home, and while you driving, a lot of guys they. One of real, you know, they, they just couldn't sit in the car and just behave themselves. 
So a car would come by you, one of the wrestlers would come by you while you're driving back home, just like 12 o'clock at night, and he would moon you. He would stick his butt out out of the window, <laughs> you know, and then, and then we laugh. Hey, look at that, look at that. Another entertainment we had driving back home, keep us awake, with old CB. Every wrestler had 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 a uh, a CB, and we talked back and forth on on the TV, on the CB and stuff. And then, like I said earlier, we we didn't have much entertainment. My entertainment for nearly 20 years was beer. Uh, like I said, there were no drugs in the business then. The drugs came along in the late 80s, early 90s, when everybody, you know, when the drugs really hit the business. But in the 70s and the 80s, there was a few guys that smoked pot or, you know, took uh, pain pills or something. But there was no cocaine or none of the stuff that they got now. It was mostly just, most of just beer. I mean, it wasn't even that much about pot. Some of the younger wrestlers, like myself and Tommy Wildfire, Rich, a couple of guys, you know, we like, you know, taking a little token out of But these old guys that train me, like Abe Jacobs and like like uh, Rocket Johnson. Rocket Johnson didn't drink beer. He was a whiskey man. I could see him now get to get that little uh, thing of, of whiskey, put it between his legs, take a little cap out, put it back on, got it, you know. In the flask right between his legs. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but he, held it, he, held it, he held it with his leg, and he pulled the ball out and drank it on the whiskey. So a lot of guys, they was really, really uh, uh, into the whiskey. Like I said, there were no drugs back, back in them days. So they'd go out and give him a, a pint of whiskey or a six-pack of beer, and we'd drive back home. And the guy would do ribs and everything. I remember one time this cop, I, I don't know, some of the stuff that I'm telling you, you probably say, oh, Tony making it up. It couldn't happen. But in the 70s, you get away with a whole lot more than you could today. We were riding with Adrian Adonis. He was in front of us going back home one night. And this policeman don't pull over, and, and uh, he had his hat off. He had a hair on the top of a ball on top. So Adrian Adonis had a piece of bologna in his hand. So couldn't happen again in a thousand years. He took that bologna and threw it out the window at the cop. The, the cop had his head down like that. That bologna... Landed right on that policeman's head, just like this. The policeman looked up, looked up, and looked around and see what the hell was happening. Went right back, sat in his face. Never looked at the baloney on his head. <laughs> if he had saw that baloney, he would have ran out of us. Another time we coming home, uh, the guy's going to play a joke on me because I just started learning how to drive. So I'm driving, and back then the speed limit uh, in the 70s was 55. We hated it. 55 miles per hour would take you forever to, to get home. You fall asleep behind the wheel. In fact, it was dangerous 55 because people would actually fall asleep behind the wheel. So I'm, I'm driving I'm driving back one night, and I'm in Georgia. I'm in Georgia. And I never drove by myself. I always had another wrestler with me, but George Scott said, I want you to drive by yourself and learn how to be independent. You can't depend on these guys. I got to be independent, independent, independent. So I'm driving. All of a sudden, I'm coming from Rome, Georgia, back to Atlanta, and I see these lights coming at me. Now, these old dark country roads didn't have street lights or, you know, no light in nowhere. Mm -hmm. The only light you had was working on your car. So, for some reason, coming around that curve, the car was coming around the world with the lights, his headlight right, right in front of me. So, in my head, being new to driving at night and by myself, I thought the car was coming at me. I, that's what I thought. I said, this car is going to freaking hit me. 
So I'm waiting for the, the guy to get on his side of the lane. I'm here hollering at him. Get over. Like he's going to hear you. Like he's going to hear me. Yeah. <laughs> you know how you holler at the TV? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hollering at this guy. And, you know, he, you know, way away from me in another car coming towards me. It was a two-lane highway, two-lane highway. So I got so scared, I thought the guy going to hit me. So I turned my wheel real fast, went off the side of the road. Now I'm sitting on the side of the road, out in the freaking boonies, you know. So I remember Klondike Bill and Johnny Weaver take me to this little, had a little store there, like a little gas station store together. Mm -hmm. And the guy sold food and, you know, like everything all in one little store. Mm -hmm. They had a, a touring company, you yeah. know, where you, he told you cars and stuff. So I said, oh, I know where I could go. So I left my car there. I walked, I would say probably about a mile, maybe maybe two at the most. I walked down to his place. I knocked on his door. He he was upstairs of his of his business. He looked out the window. Hey, what are you doing down there? I said, oh, my car went off the road. He said, don't you have a telephone? I said, not in my car. Okay. I'll be down in a minute. So, so he come down. He gets in his tow truck. I get in the tow truck with the tow truck, pull up to the car. Well, by the time I get back to where I ran off the road at, you had a guy, that, his name was, uh, wait a minute, Bill Howard. Okay. His name, his, name, his name was Bill Howard. And uh, Bill Howard said, Tony, you got you to gotta go with this. You got to work with us. got to work with us. I said, okay, okay, what are you going to do? I mean, you go climb up that tree. I said, well, climb up that tree. I said, yeah, yeah, go climb up that tree. And then I'm up in the tree and I'm looking down and I see this sheriff. He went, you know, pop belly sheriff, had his tie on, crooked way over here, and, you know, his shirt was unbuttoned down here, tobacco juice hanging on both sides of his lip, <laughs> tobacco juice and his lunch on his chest. Looked like the guy in uh, uh, Smoking the Bandit. Smoking the Bandit. <laughs> Just like the guy in Smoking the Bandit, but a little bit heavier. Yeah. A yeah, little bit yeah. heavier. You know, his pants, his belt was hanging over top of his pants. And uh, he, he, he's shining lights up in the tree, looking for me. Oh, man, looking for me, looking for me. Found it. He's shining light on me. Not making fun of folk, but you got to tell it the way you hear it. Otherwise, you don't get the full meaning. Hey, boy. You come on down out there now. I see you. I see you. Out there, boy. You come on down from there. Bill Howard and the other wrestlers in their tears. <laughs> they are laughing so freaking hard they couldn't even stand up. They're leaning over the car. They are going freaking up. They said, this is the best fucking night. What did they tell the cop? They, they told the cop that I wrecked the car. The cop asked them uh, at the beginning. The cop said, well, who is it? So they told the cop, it's a black wrestler. And the cop said, oh, the black rascal, huh? Well, I know where they at. Them damn coons always climbing trees. Who said that? The cop. Them oh, damn coons always climbing trees. That's why he was looking up in the tree for okay. me. Because once they told him I was black, he just knew I was up in the freaking tree. I don't, <laughs> I don't know where that, where that came from. You know, this is my first yeah. year, my first year in Georgia. I ain't know nothing about Georgia, you know. So anyway, he got me to come down out of his head. If you don't come down out that tree, boy, I'm going to sit my dog on you. He had this old blue nose, uh, what do you call them? We call them tick hounds back then, uh, uh, hound dog. Blood hounds? Yeah, blood hound with the yep. long ears, yep. big old long face, you know, the big 
strong legs, you know, not the little stubby, not yeah, the best yeah. hand, but the you know, yeah, big yeah. old the the dog was about as lazy as the cop was. The dog go. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I laid out down. Yeah. He said, You hear that dog, wild boy? You better come on down there. So I came down the tree and uh Bill Howard didn't want him to take me to jail. He said, he said, I got him now. I got him now. Bill said, well, we're going to take care of it. He said, well, he belonged to us. The cop, I don't know where this stuff comes from, but it's in Georgia in the early 70s. Yeah. Bill said, well, we're going to take him home and give him a good whooping. You're going to whoop him? Well, you whoop him good. Teach him how to drive, too. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> whoop, that, whoop that boy good. Teach him how to drive, too. So they pulled my car out the ditch and everything. I got in the car. And and uh and, and we went home. And I got teased about that. Oh my goodness! I got teased about that for about a for about a month. You know? <laughs> and I would learn how to drive. Now my first the guy that, that taught me how to drive was a guy to call was a Puerto Rican guy named Don Serrano. Don Serrano was a little stocky Puerto Rican guy. He was only about like five foot six. So he used to get these boots made up that was the big lifts with the big lifts on to make himself look taller. So. George Scott, he had a Cadillac. A lot of boys wore Cadillac Lankers or big cars. Mm -hmm. We tried with four in the car. We didn't have no Corvettes. We had a little Yeah, yeah, yeah. We wanted a big car. So he said, Tony, I got to show you how to drive. So he was getting tired, what it was. He was getting tired. Almost, you know. He said, Brother, I don't think we're going to make it. You're going to have to help me. We were driving from Norfolk, Virginia. And the next day, we had to be in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, so we had to get back to Charlotte. Then we stayed over in Charlotte. And then we go from Charlotte the next day to Charleston, South Carolina. So Dom uh, Serrano, he was getting a little bit tired. So he said, okay, I'm going to let you drive some, kid. He said, all you got to do is keep it in the road. I said, okay, I, I could do that. So I'm driving. Dom Serrano is sleeping. There's not a car on the road. This in the old days, mm -hmm. everybody didn't run all up and down the oh, yeah. damn highway like to do now. So I'm 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 driving. All of a sudden, I see another car in front of me. So I said, Don, Don, Don. What 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 what? I said, it's a car in front of us. That's okay. It's out of my head. <laughs> Go back to sleep. Don, Don. What should I do? Well, if you don't like him in front of it, go around him. Oh, okay. I go around him. Don, lay back down. Don, Don, what, 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 what? How did I do that? <laughs> how did how did I go around it? Well, Tony, you just turn the wheel over in the other lane. So I turn the wheel in the other lane. I said, well, Don. There's a car coming straight at me. Well, you put a look first. Get back over there. <laughs> so then I had to cut back into the lane. Because <laughs> he told me, I did what he told me. I didn't yeah. look. He said, all you got to do is go into the other lane and go around and then come back in your lane. So I went in the other lane. When I went in the other lane, I saw another car called a two-lane highway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a four-lane oh, highway. Yeah. It's a two-lane. Yep. So this other car is coming. I said, that dog <laughs> It's another car. It's another car. In front of me. He said, well, get back in your lane. I said, okay, dog, there's a car there. Well, slow down and get back in your lane. So the whole night, he telling me to drive. But instead of sleeping, <laughs> he's like this. <laughs> we get back to the Charlotte. 
You kept him awake, didn't you? Yeah, I kept him awake. <laughs> Larry said, you kept him awake? Yes, I did. So I took a say, uh, when I got back, I said, Dawn, how did I do? Dawn said, I'll see you later. And he left. <laughs> no, he left. That was, these was some of the things that we took chances. We know a lot of this stuff now that I, I say is, is funny now because we lived through it. But then when I look back on, on stuff, I said this once, I say it again. We was fucking nuts. <laughs> and lucky. And lucky. Luck, boy, luck, luck had no, what is it? God had pity on the crazy people and, and Chandra. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. We we was crazy as hell. When I look <laughs> to be in wrestling, you had to be crazy back in them days. I mean, you stop and think about it. We did sixteen, eighteen hour days. I mean, your day started at nine o'clock in the morning for Johnny Valentine. It started at seven in the morning. Johnny Valentine would get up at seven o'clock in the morning, go work out, go have breakfast, go have breakfast at eight o'clock. Larry is killing himself in my house. Go have breakfast at eight o'clock. Did he go to the? You know, did he go home? Spend a little time with his family. By you know ten or twelve o'clock, you know he was on the road, and we was on the road all the way up until two o'clock in the morning. I mean, if you got to bed at two o'clock in the morning, you you you, you, you was good. Now you I know? always I always heard a saying: wrestling and crazy go hand in hand. You either yes, get it into does. it because you are. That's right. Or you're in it long enough that it makes you. That's right. But that was what I'm talking about is wrestling, mm -hmm. not sports entertainment. Mm -hmm. Not sports entertainment. That's what y'all get now is sports entertainment. Like when you watch wrestling now on TV, everything is scripted. It's scripted. From the beginning of the match to the end of the match. Everything is planned out, worked out, practiced before you get into the ring. So the wrestlers know what they're going to do before they get into the ring. And you want to hear it again. Us old people love this word. All old people love this word. In my day, <laughs> the only information I got, because the way they had it, the, the good guys and the bad guys did not come out the same door. They did not dress in the same room. They didn't even stay at the same hotel. If I went into a hotel and I'm on a wrestling uh, 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 a bad guy such like Johnny Valentine or Greg Valentine or Ric Flair if I go to check in the hotel we used to race at home and race back to a hotel because all the wrestlers mostly stay at the same hotel so if I see this, this wrestler check into this hotel I had to find another hotel I couldn't stay in the hotel with my opponent because people was always looking for something where they could say wrestling is fake wrestling is fake it was our job for us not to catch them, catch, you know, find out what the business really like. So we didn't want to get caught. If you got caught and you exposed the business, the promoter would fire you. And there was a, a saying in wrestling, telephone, telegraph, and telewrestler. The reason for this, a wrestler could learn something in Georgia, but the next day that wrestler in North Carolina. And then the next day that same wrestler is in California. So by the time... The guy, he saw something in Georgia, but when he go, every territory he go to, he would tell, tell the story, you know, when I, and that's how wrestling was. So people knew that I was training to be a wrestler before I even had my first bout. I remember with George, uh, I was riding down the road with uh, some guys, 
and uh, teach you how to be thankful and teach you how to think too. Now, this was something I had a hard time doing, thinking. Most of us, we're not used to thinking. We used to going to work. Our boss tell us what we got to do for that day. We do what we're supposed to do for that day, and then we go home. We're not used to being, what I'm trying to say, uh, we're not used to just being, uh, what the word, when you take initiative. We could not take initiative. First of all, we was afraid we are going to get fired. That was the first thing. And and the second thing was, if, it, if you don't come up with the idea that something go wrong, it's not your fault. You come up with the idea and something go wrong, it's your fault. So one of the things that I learned about listening, listening, I was riding with Gene Anderson, and I can't remember who the other person was, but I know Gene Anderson was in the car because the thing was with Gene. Gene Anderson said, Tony, what sport you play in this school other than wrestling? Because he knew I was on the wrestling team in uh in our, our school, you know. Larry, hand me that wrestling picture, please, sir. Which one? Yeah, the, me, my, my uh, wrestling one. Oh, the high school? Yeah, yeah, you're going out to hang it up when you get through. Larry, okay. Larry's a good friend, man. That's why we talk to each other like, like that. Hey, you. Now, I got a question for y'all. I don't know if y'all can see this. This is me on my wrestling team. Now, the question is, can anybody out there guess which one is me? <laughs> You get a free autograph picture of Tony Atlas. All you do is contact old Larry. He made, uh, no, contact Martin. Let Martin do some work. <laughs> contact Martin and the firm and say, look, I know which one is Tony Atlas, but this is me at Patriot High School. And my favorite football team is the Patriots, and th the name of our team was the Patriots. Well, anyway, this is me when I was in high school. That's the, the, my teammates right there in high school. Thank you, Larry. Absolutely. But, uh, Anyway, Gene Anderson said, what other sport you play, Tony, other than wrestling? And I said, well, you know I lift weights. Yeah, I know about the way you lift He said, well, what did you do in school, I mean? I said, oh, I ran track. He said, what you did in track? I said, I used to do the 100-yard dash. I used to do, uh, I used to put the shot put. You know, some people say you throw the shot put, but you ever did the shot put, you put the shot put. That might call a shot put, not a shot throw, but a shot put. So I said, I used to put the shot put, I did a 100-yard dash, and I used to do the 220. He said, oh, with all them muscles, you could run? I go, yeah, I was pretty pretty good at, at running, you know. I said, I wasn't the best, but I, I was good enough to be on the team. He goes, well, he said, so you're a pretty fast runner. I said, I'm, I'm decent. He said, I'll tell you what, I will race you for 50 bucks. I said, Gene, come on. I said, I wasn't that bad on the team. I said, I, I did pretty good, you know. He said, no, I race you, kid. He said, I, I would race you. I would race you for 50 bucks. I said, you want to race me? He said, yeah, I race you for 50 bucks. I said, okay. So they pulled the car over. We walked down uh, to the next mile marker. Gene said, okay, that's far enough. So the driver, like I said, I can't remember who it was. I want to say so bad Klondike or Johnny Weaver because I spent most of my time with Johnny Weaver Clyde Bill, and another black wrestler who used to play football named Charlie Cook. So, but I know it wasn't Charlie, uh, Charlie Cook. But anyway, the guy got out the car, the driver, lift the towel up, because all wrestlers carried towels back in the day. 
and he dropped the towel. When he dropped the towel, I took off like a bat out of hell. I mean, I gave it everything I got. Something told me to look back. I look back, old Gene Anderson, he's coming like, he's trotting, just like this. Just trotting along, taking his time. He got back, he looked at me, he said, okay, you owe me 50 bucks. I said, Gene, I won. He said, I didn't tell you that I, go, that I could beat you, Brandon. He said, I bet you that I would race you. See? <laughs> that's where they, they, they would teach me that. Yeah. He said, that's a lesson you need to learn, kid. You need to learn to listen to what someone say. If you stop and think about it, he said, I'll erase you for $50. He raced me. Yeah. He didn't say you're going to win the race. Mm -hmm. He said, I will erase you. He did what he said. He raced me. And then he worked you. He worked me. That's, that's when God started teaching me to listen. Another thing, I hope I have time to tell this story, because this is all at the beginning of my career. Uh, I, I don't do things in order, because you don't come in here in order. I have to tell y'all as you come, I have to tell it, because tomorrow I can, I'll forget the hell all about it, you know? That's, that's what my little pea brain work, you know? But anyway, I, I, my first week in wrestling, my very, very first week in wrestling, George Scott wanted to make me some money, because I to get me on my feet. So he put me on all the shows with Wahoo McDaniel and Rick Flair. And Wahoo and Rick Flair and Johnny Valentine, they were selling out everywhere. And Rufus R. Freight Train Joe, they were the big side. Another wrestler that people don't talk much about was Paul Jones. Mm -hmm. So they would put me on the card with them. You may see some old cards which is semi-final. The semi-final match was always a tag. It was always a tag match. And and a semi-final would happen right before uh, intermission, because you want to leave something with, uh, something good for the people uh, before they go to intermission, and then they come back with the big main event. The main event was the only match. Sometimes they had a double main event, which had, after the intermission had two matches. Uh, after the, it, so it was only six matches. So so the only, so it was only main events after intermission. I thought that was the only thing. Sometimes why... sometime they would have two mat, two main events, like we call a double main event, but, but the semi-phantom match was right before intermission, mm -hmm. you know, to give them something good to think about, to come back um, oh, to. So. Yeah. So they put me in the, in the all, <coughs> all week, instead of being in a preliminary match, which is the first sucker, third match, or fourth match, uh, they would put me in a semi-main uh, event, which you got paid more money. The higher you are on the car, like the guy on the first, just throwing numbers out there, maybe the guy on the first car would get 100 bucks that night. This guy would get 150 on the second mat. He would get 200 on the third mat. They'd be 250 on the fourth mat, and then you got you get like three or 400 for the semifinal. You get like five or six for the main event. So as your matches, as you move up the ladder, your money moved up with you. So he put me in a big spot. This is my first week. I'm in a semifinal. Semi, a lot of jealousy at that time. You would know well, the driver say, "Why in the fucking hell did this freaking kid?" walk through the freaking door, and all of a sudden, he's making more money than I make. So I'm riding back with uh, these wrestlers, and one of them, Rene Goulet, Rene Goulet, freaking stooge, he said, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they call him Sergeant Jacques Goulet. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Sergeant Jacques Goulet. He said, hey, kid, where the, that's why I use the word kid, because that's, that's just how the wrestler taught you. He said, hey, kid, are you new to the business, or you're a kid in the business. You can be 25 years old, but in the business, you are a kid. So I'm riding with these guys. I'm sitting in the back seat. Hey, kid, how much money you made this week? 
I said, not know nobody. Well, I didn't know. You're not supposed to tell what you made because that mm -hmm. creates animosity because nobody got paid the same. Right. You know, nobody got paid the same. So I said, I made $1,500. What I didn't know is if I made $1,500, everybody would call Like that. <laughs> so I said, oh. He said, oh, yeah. He said, that's it? I go, yeah. I made $1,500 this week. And he said, well, you know, Rufus off freight train, Joe, he was not a big black wrestler. He got a belly out to here. He don't have your body. He don't have all your trophies and medals and stuff. He said, he made $2,500 this week. You only made fifteen. He said, here's another thing about listening. He said, wouldn't you like to make $2,500 in one week? I go, well, hell yeah. He said, oh, yeah. So we talked a little bit more. The next morning, my phone went off. Seven o'clock in the morning, George Scott is on the phone. He's madder than hell. He's mad. You get your ass down here right now. Get down here, Tony. Get down. He was like a father to me. Mm -hmm. Get down here, boy. So I get in my car, get dressed. I didn't even shower. Just got dressed. I'm around. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, what is this all about? Because I could tell by his voice he's mad. He said, <clears throat> I hear you was complaining last night. Man, I, I was complaining about nothing. He said, well, my phone rung off this morning. He said, everybody in the car said you was complaining that Rufus R. Jones made more money than you. <laughs> now, later I learned, once again, how to listen. What I should have said, oh, no, I'm very happy with what I made. Yeah. But I didn't know that then. Right, right. So when he asked me, would you like to make $2,500? I said, well, hell, you're yeah, going like to make $2,500. Exactly. But, but that ain't how you answer these guys. Right. You know, you have to students. think about where they're going with this, yeah. you know. And and he said, George Scott said, well, you should have told him that you were you were satisfied with what you got. So then I hope I have time to tell the rest of this story. If not, I'll pick it up on, 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 on next week. He said, well, Tony, even though I believe what you said, he said, but I still have to, he said, for the sake of the boys, to, I have to teach you a lesson. So he sent me to Kansas City, Missouri. And I stayed at, at, the guys were not making much money in Kansas City. Then he sent me to, uh, I, I'm going to tell y'all more. I don't have time to tell y'all these stories. You got eight but, minutes on you. Yeah, oh, okay. Larry said, I do have time. So anyway, let me finish up this one story. So I'm going to leave everybody hold for next week. So George Scott said, well, I still got to teach you a lesson, kid, about how to listen and pay attention. The right people trick you. You have to use your head in this business. It ain't all about the muscles. You have to use your head. He kept telling me, you got to learn to use your head. Because these guys would try to screw you. They're not your friends. They're not, you know, they're your business associate. I didn't understand that then. So anyway, they sent me to Kansas City. Uh, it was, what was it called? Ganya? No, was it Ganya? Uh, what was it? With the promoter? Pat, yeah, Pat O'Connor and yeah. uh, Bob Geiger. Geiger. Yes. Bob Geiger. Yeah. Bob Geiger was the promoter at Pat, uh, Pat O'Connor. So we stayed at this hotel called a Raz Razorback. Had this old elevator that didn't have buttons that you push like the elevator do today. I mean, old elevator. You get on this thing, you have a like a fence or something. You pull in front of you. You got a guy that would take you up to your floor and he get give him tips and everything. So one day he saw me. He go, "Hey, if you need any action, I'm your man." I go, "Oh, okay." He said, "I get you women." I get you dope. Whatever you want, you come and see me, brother. He said, we fixed you up. 
So one night, old Tony got a little horny. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, maybe I'll go see this guy tonight. So I said, hey, man, could you hook me up with somebody? I was probably about 20 or 21 years, years of age, no more than 21. I said 22 at the verb, early 20. So I go up to my room, and here comes this woman coming up to my room. I'm in my 20s. This freaking woman got to be in her 60s. Oh, Jesus. Had no teeth in her mouth. Oh, Not, not tooth to first. Oh. Wrinkle up everything. <laughs> her breast hung down like two slabs of bacon. She pulled them damn clothes off in front of me. And I said, look, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of... I'm kind of tired from from my show. I said, "Why you tell the guy that you did me? Huh? How much? How much I had to pay you?" She told me I paid her to leave. <laughs> I know. Went back to him. Yeah. I think he was he was he was pimping out. He was a pimp for his mom or something. <laughs> you know, I think it was a mom uh, uh, a mom uh, uh, mom son connection son connection oh, or something. Yeah. So he was pimping. You know, his mother must have been old old drug addict prostitute from year back. And now she got her son getting yeah. her dates and stuff Ooh. like that. You know, I have seen it all. You know, this shit, you can't make it all up, you know. So then he sent me, uh, I would tell you more about these things too, because it, 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 would, it would come to me after I get through talking. A lot of stuff come to me. I said, damn, I wish I had told him about this. I wish. But then there's always another time, hopefully. And then he sent me to uh, Amarillo. I mean, no, before Amarillo, I went to uh, Dallas for Fritz Bronner. Fritz Bronner was a big six foot six, 300 pound German, you know, and he would throw that big leg up on the table and lean on that big leg, had calves about that big around. And he put me in the ring. Uh, he was real nice to me. Devon Eriks uh, was real nice to me. Uh, then they saw me where I had the most excitement when I went to Amarillo and worked for Dory Funk uh, Jr. Dory Funk uh, Jr. They were Dory Funk Sr., Dory Funk Jr. Now, Dory Funk is Terry Funk's brother. So I got down there, and I met this guy. They called Sputney Monroe. <laughs> Diamond ring, Cadillac man. In fact, Ric Flair stole a lot of stuff. I want to say stole. I'm, the best word for it, he uh, recreated. There you go. Recreated a lot of stuff that he learned from Sputney Monroe. See, nothing in wrestling is new. A lot of this stuff was done 50 years ago, but they didn't have cable TV, they didn't have the internet, so a lot of people didn't see it. But in the business, we've seen it, or we heard about it, or somebody told us about it, so we found out. So I wanted to, I'm going to wrestle Sputnik Monroe. Well, when I got up in the ring, what I noticed was 80% of the fans at this show was black. I'm in the dressing room, I'm happy as a hog in slop. What? I'm black? 80% of the crowd is black? I'm going to get over like a million dollars here. This is going to be my best town right here. I said, I'm going to love this. And so I uh, go out in the ring. I get a couple of, eh, eh, you know, not nothing real big. Then Sputnik Monroe came out of the dress room. Everybody in the freaking dress room started hollering and screaming. I mean, not in the dress room, in the arena, started hollering and screaming for Sputnik. And and he was all black. Every black person in the ring was screaming for Sputnik Mon Monroe. Now, Sputnik would call a bad guy a heel. I was a baby face, a good guy. I hit Sputnik. The people go, boo! 
cool. It's about to hit me. The black people go, yay. So I'm sitting there talking about how in the hell can black people cheer more for a white guy than they would cheer for me? Then I saw Sputnik Monroe do his interview. Now, Sputnik Monroe was kind of like Dusty Rhodes. He was white, but he talked black. You know, he had that, you know, he had that that thing, like Rick, he had a Ric Flair, uh, you know, Dusty Rhodes. They just knew how to connect with the black audience. They knew how to connect. So then we get back to the hotel after the match and everything was all over with. We get back to the hotel, and I said, well, where can I get some barbecue? Asked Sputnik. Where can I get a black woman? Asked Sputnik. Then found it Ray Cannon, who was a black guy, mm-hmm. big Ray Cannon. He said, anything you want here in a black neighborhood, ask Sputnik. I said, but you, you black Ray. He said, yeah, but they like Sputnik more than like me. Uh-huh. He said, I'm a heel with Sputnik. He said, everybody's a heel with Sputnik Monroe. Mm-hmm. So the Sputnik Monroe years ago, I got one minute. I'll tell you a little bit about Sputnik and I'm in it. Sputnik Monroe would used to, he got Moolah started. Moolah used to wrestle as his manager and the slave girl. Correct. So yep. Sputnik Monroe. So once again, I want to thank y'all. Uh, uh, thank y'all for coming. This is Wrestling and Wrestling with Real. And for those that want to see where I'm going to be, I got one of the places. The Larry, Larry oh. Reed. I'm gonna, if y'all want to see me sometime this month, I'm going to be in uh, Philadelphia, in, in, in Pennsylvania at the Let's see, we're gonna be Hyber Wrestling. Friday, Friday, November 5th at Hybrid Wrestling in Chester, Pennsylvania at the Harris Philadelphia Casino and Racetrack. Right. And, and then, the next uh, day, the next day, we are going to be at Celebration right here in Lewiston. Lewiston, Maine. Right. On the 6th. Me and Larry are going to be together on, the, on right. the Lewiston one. So y'all come up and ask questions and take pictures and, and come out and see us. It's going to be from 10 to 4, and it's at the Ramada Inn. At the Ramada Inn. That's, and that's on the 6th. On the 5th is Hyber Wrestling in Pennsylvania. So once again, thank y'all for your wonderful of uh, participation is coming to, to see us and remember I was around when wrestling was